So I think we're seeing a massive disinflationary wave that has just now arrived and is going to sweep across the global economy over the next year. So like you said, inflation was the word of the year in 2022. Disinflation will be the word of the year in 2023. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, what is going on this week? Oh, man, a lot's going on. What's not going on this week? CPI, the Fed, uh, jobless claims, everything is going on this week. And what happens this week is going to determine whether or not we get that well, well, well overdue and also wonderful Santa rally. And in spirit of that, I have my my Santa mug with me today. So cheers to that. Did you buy that yourself or was that a gift? Oh, I've had this for a long time. I don't even remember, Aaron. I have this <laughs> and I have another one that is actual. It's an actual Santa face on the mug. So okay. um, I have two two Santa mugs, two Christmas mugs that I might go to. I alternate between them. I'm going to mm. get close to the holidays. I'm a, I'm a jolly old fellow. I'm a jolly old fellow, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to seeing some of that jolliness in the next hour or so. And uh, if this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, the housing market, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get Hypergrowth Investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Starting things off this week with inflation. The word of the day, Luke, it's been the word of the year too, but mm -hmm. inflation is starting to come down in a big way. We got a much cooler than expected CPI print today, and the market is rallying big. And you think that the word of the year next year is going to be disinflation. How yep. are you feeling about the outlook of inflation going into 2023? Uh, I, I think it's a foregone conclusion that inflation is going to absolutely crash over the next 12 to 24 months, that the disinflation wave has begun, the disinflation cycle has begun, and these cycles tend to last a very long time. So if you go back to the Great Depression, go back to the 19, go back to 1930, back to the 1920s, so we're talking 100 years of market data here. Um, we've had make one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. This is the eight. So seven prior periods of red hot inflation turning into disinflation. So when you know you go from one, two, three, four, five percent inflation up to six, seven, eight, nine percent inflation, and then that turns into seven, six, five, four, three, two, one percent inflation. That transition, when red hot inflation turns into a big disinflationary cycle, it's happened seven times before in the history of the, the U.S. market of the past hundred years. Each time, as soon as the inflation trend reversed course, it kept going lower. 
there were no head fakes. It wasn't like, okay, we lost two points. So right now we're down two points on CPI over five months. Never before have we gone down two points over five months and then inflation was like, just kidding, and reaccelerates. No, <laughs> never, 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 never. In fact, what happens is you always get at least a year of disinflation and at least three and a half points of disinflation at the very bare minimum. And on average, what you get is you get two to three years of disinflation and about 10 points off of the CPI. So we're talking massive disinflationary cycles. That's what happens. That's how inflation moves. Inflation moves in long and drawn out trends. It takes a while for inflation to go to 1% to 9% like it did. And it also takes a while for inflation to go to 9% to 1%. So this disinflationary wave, this disinflationary cycle that has begun, the forces are in motion and they're going to stay in motion for a long, long time. Time Just to hammer in this point, I'm going to rattle off the numbers of the previous disinflationary <laughs> cycles that were very similar to what we're going through right now. So 1942 to 1944 was a disinflationary cycle after a period of red hot inflation that lasted 24 months and shaved 13 points off the of CPI. In the late 40s, we had another dis- disinflationary cycle lasted 28 months, took 22 points off a of CPI. In the early 50s, another disinflationary cycle lasted 44 months, took 10 points off a of CPI. Early 70s, 29 months of disinflation, three and a half points off a of CPI. Mid 70s, 24 months of disinflation, seven and a half points off a of CPI. Early 80s, 40 months of disinflation, 12.3 points off a of CPI. Not early 90s, 14 months of disinflation, four points off a of CPI. So here we are in 22, and the numbers are five months of disinflation and 1.9 points off a of CPI. So you put that in context with the numbers that I just rattled off to you, and it's clear as day. The disinflation cycle is in the second inning, both in terms of magnitude and length. So I am very confident in saying that inflation is going to crash, continue to crash, at a pace of about probably 30 to 40 basis points per month over the next probably at least 12 months and maybe even 16, 18, 24 months going into 24. So I think we're seeing a massive disinflationary wave that has just now arrived and is going to sweep across the global economy over the next year. So like you said, inflation was the word of the year in 2022. Disinflation will be the word of the year in 2023. And that's very bullish for stocks because whenever red hot inflation turns into a prolonged period of disinflation, stocks tend to respond positively. Stocks tend to rally. So I think it's a very bullish outlook when you talk about the outlook for inflation with respect to the economy and the stock market. So given that outlook for inflation, what is the Fed's response going to be to these disinflationary trends over the course of the next year? How is that going to impact the economy and the stock market? Right. So that's exactly what you're seeing today, right? Is we had this really bullish CPI print, big miss, surprise with the downside, which is bullish for the markets. Inflation is slowing much more quickly than people anticipated. Um, it's barely budging on a month over month basis, 0.1% up month over month. So a very bullish print. And that caused a massive gap up at the open. 
I mean, the NASDAQ at one point was up, I think, about 3.5%, 3.6% at its peak today. And we've actually had some pretty vicious and nasty price action throughout the day to where right now, as I check over, the NASDAQ's only up 0.6%. So it's given up about 3% on the day as trading has, has continued. And the reason for that is nobody wants to get – yes, the CPI was super bullish, but there are two factors here, inflation and the Fed. If inflation falls, but the Fed doesn't follow suit with a more dovish policy set, then it's all for naught. You need both inflation to fall and the Fed to follow through with a more dovish policy set. You need that pivot. So nobody wants to get too bullish on the CPI today ahead of Powell hitting the press conference tomorrow because they know that Powell wants to bring down inflation. So investors get super bullish, super excited about the CPI print today and stocks go up three, four percent. Then tomorrow, Powell's going to take the stage and try to talk down that rally because his job is to keep us in the guardrails. He doesn't want us to get too optimistic because if we get too optimistic, then inflation has a chance of reaccelerating, something he doesn't want. Now, if we get too pessimistic, then the economy has a chance of collapsing, also something we don't want. So he's got to keep us in the guardrails of preventing the economy from collapsing while also preventing us from being too optimistic and reaccelerating inflation. So he has to keep us, again, in those guardrails. And the market knows that. So the market can't rally too big ahead of the Fed because the Fed just going to talk it down and kill the rally. So the market rallied big. Now it's selling off a little bit. Doesn't want to get too excited in front of the Fed, but I am very confident. I think Powell is going to sound pretty dovish tomorrow. I mean, the last time Powell took the stage and had a press conference and talked to people about the markets was two weeks ago, and we rallied significantly because Powell sounded more dovish than he has in several months. That was two weeks ago. Okay, he's not going to suddenly change his tone in two weeks. He would lose all credibility. And in the two weeks since then, the only new data we've gotten is very bullish data. PPI came in lower than expected. CPI came in lower than expected. Um, Wage growth is moderating. So you're seeing all the signs that he wants to see. So it would make no sense for him to deviate from the script. The script two weeks ago was we are getting more dovish. All the data since then has been more dovish leaning. So when he takes a stage tomorrow, I'm expecting him to continue that script. We are getting more dovish. They're going to go 50. I think he's going to sound more dovish than expected. And I think that is what's going to lift the lid on this market. That today, the CPI tried to pop the lid off, and it did for a moment. And then people rushed it back closed. Like, wait, let's see what the Fed does. Then I think once the Fed is clear, then we finally pop the lid on the stock market open, break above this downtrend resistance line on the S&P 500, and we cruise into the end of the year with a big Santa rally. And that leads to a new bull market in 2023. So I think the Fed does respond to falling inflation with a more dovish policy set next year, but they're going to wait until the last minute to do so and try and thread the needle. And they should. They really should. That's what they need to do because if they pivot too early, they pivot too prematurely, that's what will cause for the first time ever reacceleration of inflation before we get too deep in this disinflationary cycle. So he's going to try and, and continue to sound hawkish, continue to sound um, like he wants to fight inflation at all costs. And that is is what he should do. But I think the market will read past that and say, okay, we know what you're doing here. You are going to pivot. You are going to go more dovish in 23. Let's, let's rally ahead of that. So I think the Fed is going to follow suit with exactly what the market needs in 2023. A market that is broken by inflation and a hawkish Fed, the perfect medicine, the fix, the, the antidote is 
disinflation and a more dovish Fed. You're going to get those two things in 2023. It's going to be a panacea for stocks. I think risk assets really, really inflate next year. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting really bullish on things right now. That's that's why I have my Santa mug. That's why I have my Santa mug. <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good about the, the market going into next year and in the next 12 months for stocks. All right. Well, well on that note, Luke, uh, can you defend the soft landing thesis? Right. Everyone says that the Fed always fails and we always get hard landings. Why are we going to get a soft landing this time? Right. And that's, that's a great question. So first off, it should be noted that the Fed does not always fail. The Fed normally fails. There have been 12 rate hiking cycles. Nine of the times you got a hard landing, three of the times you got a soft landing. So 25%, 75%. Um, that doesn't mean the Fed always fails. It means the Fed typically fails, but not always. There's a 25% <laughs> chance, historically speaking, that we get a soft landing. When you look at the data today, uh, it's very conducive to a soft landing. So you're getting massive – I think the critical point today that I got from the CPI report is we are getting massive disinflation without any labor market destruction, okay? We are down 200 basis points on the CPI. We're down a full two points on CPI. By the time we were down a full two points on the CPI in the early 80s, unemployment had spiked like 500 basis points and was up around 9%. By the time we got 200 basis points of disinflation in the mid-70s, unemployment, I think, was up like 200 or 300 basis points to around 7%. We're up 20 basis points, drop in the ocean, to 3.7% unemployment today. So we are getting massive disinflation, significant disinflation without any labor market destruction. That's rare. And that is what you need for a soft landing. We didn't get soft landings before because you needed labor market destruction to bring down inflation. So the Fed destroyed the labor market, Hmm. killed inflation, but then by destroying the labor market, killed the economy in the process, and you got a hard landing. But the Fed is successfully driving disinflation today without labor market destruction. 3.7% unemployment, barely up, and we're down 200 200 basis points, a full two points on CPI. That's amazing. And – Powell gets a lot of hate. The Fed gets a lot of hate. They're doing a great job. That is proof in the pudding that they are doing a fantastic job of engineering this slowdown. We are down a full two points on inflation. The trend is clearly disinflationary, yet the labor market is very, very, very strong. Kudos to the Fed. Tip of the hat. That's an amazing job. So I think that is, that's definitely a very strong data point for why a soft landing is very possible in 23. But kind of zooming out, taking the 400 foot view here, the reality is, is there's, there's two things. One, this inflation is not driven by things that drove inflation of the past. That this inflation, I, I firmly believe this bout of inflation is a COVID aftershock. We've talked about this before. It's the last holdover effect of the pandemic. That we printed a lot of money during the pandemic to keep the, the economy afloat. And supply chains got completely screwed. So we just exacerbated demand, really pumped up demand, and really cut down supply. And that caused this inflation. But because it was driven by the pandemic, the phasing out of the pandemic and the, uh, the economy and consumers moving on from the pandemic, 
it allows us to fix inflation, that supply chains are coming back to normal. They're almost fully normal now. Look at the global supply chain pressure index from the New York Fed. That's pretty much back to where it was before the pandemic. So supply chains are, are back to normal. Demand is back to normal. You know, M2 money growth on a year-over-year basis is about as low as it's been in, in decades. So we're, we're seeing that happen. Excess savings have been wiped out almost entirely. So demand has come back down and supply has come back up. It's completely moderated. That sets the stage for moderate inflation next year without the need for for a big recession we just moderated two extremes so that that is one of the reasons why i think a soft landing is possible and the other reason is that going into this slowdown the economy is definitely slowing and it's definitely directionally negative but we started from a place of significant strength we started from a place of unemployment at three and a half percent we started from a place of the consumer spending at a rate of 10 percent year over year we started from a place of the consumer having huge bank accounts huge saving huge savings accounts we started from a point of interest rates being at you know one two three percent so everybody financed a lot of the purchases at one two three percent so there's very low interest rate payments today even with rates higher because a lot of people locked them in lower so we started from a point of significant strength And because of that, it's going to take a lot of directionally negative momentum to take that strong economy and tip it into a a deep recession. And I don't think we have that today. We just don't have that much velocity behind the slowdown. It's a slowdown. It's a typical slowdown. A typical slowdown from a very high point means, you know, if you're at 100 feet in elevation and you come down 30 feet, you lost 30 feet, but you're still at 70 feet. And that's where we are today. The economy came into the slowdown at 100 feet. It's slowing down. It'll probably slow 30 feet, 40 feet. We're still going to be well above zero. And because we're going to be well above zero, we are going to pull off or we will probably pull off a soft landing. And I think the Fed is is a big reason why. And they deserve a lot of credit for what they're doing. I think they've done a great job and will continue to do a great job. So there, there's the soft landing thesis. What factors or what scenario would have to happen for – a hard landing. Uh, you would need inflation to reaccelerate in a way that is uh, actually just reaccelerate at all and not come down in the way that it is coming down. And you would need the Fed to respond to that by being hawkish. That that's how you get get the hard landing. That let's say here, I'll, I'll paint a scenario for you. China reopens next year. Uh, that exacerbates uh, the global demand situation, um, and the U.S. consumer doesn't slow down at all. And inflation reaccelerates higher. Oil goes back to 80, 90, 100, 110, 120. Um, in that situation, oil spikes back to 120. Wheat prices go higher because the Russia-Ukraine war gets worse. China comes back online, creates a, a more robust demand picture. That's a situation where in inflation, we've come down from 9.1 to 7.1, goes back up to 9, goes back up to 10. The Fed has to reaccelerate their hawkishness. So now they're they're downsizing their rate hikes, right, from 75 to 50, probably to 25 next year. They would start upsizing again. They go back to 50, 75, kind of like what they did, you know, in the early 80s, uh, late 70s, early 80s, when Volcker took over. Um, that's a situation where the economy would nosedive into a hard landing and everything would be, I mean, it would be a very ugly ugly, ugly situation. So I think a lot of people should be rooting for for lower oil prices. A lot of people should be rooting for lower wheat prices. They should be rooting for uh, lower commodity prices in general. Uh, and they should be rooting for the Fed to, to, to win in their fight against inflation. And mm-hmm. that's, um, you know, that's, a, that, that, that's, that's what we have today. 
And the Fed's not going to back down. So we, we need them to beat inflation. If, we, if they don't, then that's how you get the hard landing. But again, I, I think the probabilities of that, that outcome materializing are, are not significant, not very high. And so I remain pretty bullish on, on stocks going into 2023. Again, I'm going to pull it back up. I brought the Santa mug for a reason. So <laughs> I'm jealous. I'm definitely jealous. Um, Let's switch gears real quick. Uh, talking about some technology topics and stocks because that's where you see the most opportunity in 2023 and beyond. First up, nuclear. You know, we've we've mentioned it before, but we really haven't talked about it. But you're yeah. just as bullish on nuclear power making a big comeback in the 2020s as you are on all the other energy topics yep. that we talk about. Yep. Um, today, the U.S. Department of Energy just announced some major breakthrough for nuclear power. Can you talk a little bit about that breakthrough? how it impacts the outlook for nuclear stocks over the next few years. Right. So, yeah, we are very bullish on nuclear power and we're specifically bullish on uh, nuclear fusion. So I think we have to So let, let's just kind of do a little take a step back and talk about just the science, and the basics here. Um, there are two ways to generate nuclear power. Um, the first is fission and the second is fusion. And they are basically the opposite. Nuclear fission involves the splitting apart of atoms. So you take an atom and you split it, and the energy created from that split is the energy we capture and use. The other fusion is bringing atoms together. So atoms, two atoms come together and create a larger atom, and the energy created from that produces a byproduct of that combination is the energy we capture and use. So fission, splitting, fusion, combining. Um, all of the nuclear power that's been produced to date, um, think about nuclear weapons, think about nuclear power plants, that has all been based on nuclear fission science. So the splitting apart of atoms. And that is inherently... I'm not going to say it's pretty dangerous, but it has challenges. Those challenges being when you split apart atoms, you can sometimes create an unstable atom and that can cause boom. And that, that's sort of what happens in, in a nuclear bomb. Um, also, you get radioactive decay from that, which needs to be managed or else you can have contamination. And that's really bad for humans or life in, in the surrounding area. Um, hence the, the Godzilla films, right? Um, so nuclear <laughs> fission has in inherent challenges, but it's been the science of choice because it's the only science of nuclear power that we have been able to actually achieve. Nuclear fusion does not have any of the setbacks of nuclear fission. Nuclear fusion, the bringing together of atoms, uh, does not, it's not based on any chain reaction. So there's no unstable atoms that are produced as a result of it. Um, it's, there's no boom. And there's no radioactive decay that is, is a byproduct of, of, the, of the fusion. So nuclear fusion takes nuclear fission setbacks and essentially eliminates them. Not to mention, it also produces way more power. It produces about four times the amount of power of fission. Nuclear fusion, you got to remember, nuclear fusion is what powers stars. Our sun, the thing you see up in the sky every single day, that is powered by nuclear fusion. And that nuclear fusion is so powerful that it happens in the sun's core. It's 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. And in the sun's core, under those extremely hot temperatures, that allows for atoms to combine 
and create bigger atoms and that releases a bunch of energy. That release of energy is so powerful that it emits light and heat 93 million miles away to Earth. And we get, you know, we feel that, we see it, it powers our entire planet. That is the power of nuclear fusion. Every star in the sky powered by nuclear fusion, our sun powered by nuclear fusion. Nuclear fusion is the most powerful thing in the universe, but it only happens naturally in stars. And stars are extremely, like in the cores of stars. And a star's core has exceptionally unique conditions that in order to replicate on Earth, require a lot of energy, specifically temperature. We talked about the sun's core, 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Really, 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 really hot temperatures are required for nuclear fusion. And you got to keep it really, 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 really hot. Getting something really, really hot to 27 million degrees Fahrenheit, keeping it that hot requires a lot of energy. So while nuclear fusion, we know that it's possible, scientists have been unable to make it a viable reality on Earth because nuclear fusion experiments to date have always produced a net energy loss, meaning Mm. that the energy required to produce the fusion is less than the energy produced from the fusion. Energy input is greater than energy output. Obviously, that's not viable. If it takes more energy for me to get the fusion reactor running than the energy produced by the fusion reactor, then I'm going to forever lose energy on that reactor. It's like a company that sells shoes for more or sells shoes for less than what it costs to make them. They're going to forever lose mm-hmm. money, right? They run at a negative gross, negative gross profit. Nuclear fusion projects to date have run at a negative gross profit or at negative net energy gain. So a net energy loss. And that's been a huge problem. And that's why fission has been the science of choice because we can run those at net energy gains. We have to deal with their side effects and all that stuff. So a lot of people in this space have long considered fusion to be the holy grail of, you know, clean energy. It is it is the source of limitless energy. To give you, you know, some like theoretical examples here, just a cup of hydrogen fuel to power a nuclear reactor. If you just get a cup of that and you pour it into a nuclear fusion reactor, the amount of power produced from that could power a home like your home or my home for hundreds of years, a single cup, just a little cup of hydrogen fuel into a nuclear fusion reactor. Um, so if we have a couple fusion reactors across the entire globe, you know, four or five, and we have, you know, ample hydrogen fuel, which you can produce from electrolysis, then boom, we have enough clean power to power the earth for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Power would be super cheap. Power would be abundant. There would be no energy crisis. Nuclear fusion is the holy grail solution for the world's current energy crisis. It is. That, that's, the science just says it is. We just have to figure out the science to make it an economic and viable reality uh, in the world today. And so what happened very recently is we were able to do that. There's, there's a lab in California, the Livermore Lab, uh, that just over the past few weeks, and it was announced today actually, they created a nuclear fission project experiment that for the first time in human history had a net energy gain. So the energy output from that fusion reaction was greater than the energy input. That's never happened before in human history. And it's the single biggest obstacle holding back nuclear fusion. Granted, it's a baby step. That doesn't mean now we're ready to go start building huge nuclear fusion reactors <laughs> and 
for the entire world. No, no, no. It's going to take time to get there. But you got to, you know, like humans, you crawl, and then you walk, and then you sprint. This was a crawl. And it shows me that there is a viable, a real viable pathway to going from crawling to walking to sprinting and making nuclear fusion reactors a true reality to power the entire world within 10 years. That's my call based on the data that I just saw at a Livermore laboratory. So I think the fact that we got the first net energy gain means that now all we have to do is take that technology, that process, that science, figure out how to scale it, make it economically viable, and then boom. We're ready for nuclear fusion reactors everywhere. So I think that it's very promising data. We're very bullish on nuclear stocks, uranium stocks, um, hydrogen stocks, because that actually kind of goes into this whole thing. Hydrogen, right? Talk about a company like Plug Power. You know, their green hydrogen production facilities could actually be the fuel for a lot of these nuclear fusion reactors. So I think it's really bullish for our hydrogen stocks. Uh, we own a couple of nuclear stocks as well. So we're really bullish on this whole obviously the whole clean energy revolution, but we think nuclear is kind of like the really slept on underrated dark horse in the clean energy or the entire energy race that will eventually actually win the race. So we're, we're yeah. very bullish on that. So what kind of timeline for, do you foresee? I, I know that, you know, you're talking about a baby step and something that, you know, right. just got announced. I know you like talking in baseball terms, the way kind of you're describing, it seems like we're just, we just got to the stadium. We haven't even started the game yet, but Time-wise, how long do you think it's going to be before we see these kinds of fusion reactors actually being put into commercial use? Yeah, I mean, I you know I would say we're like in the in the second or third inning actually. If you want to use the the ball game analogy, sure. like we definitely like a, a few pitches have been thrown, a lot of breakthroughs have been made. This was the biggest one yet, the net energy gain. Um, so you know, I think we're, we're, we're playing ball. We're definitely playing ball, and now it's just a matter of, of scaling. Like I said, so in terms of actual timeline, it's always tough to predict these things. But I do believe that within a by 2030, a at least one, if not multiple, nuclear fusion reactors will be built, large scale ones, and they will be powering a large swath of um, whatever they're supposed to power, whether it's, it's homes or communities or cities or whatever they're supposed to power. I do believe there will be functioning, real, big nuclear fusion reactors that are providing a lot of power, and that probably within 20 years, those fusion reactors are providing the bulk of power for the world. Hmm. All right. Uh, well, staying in the clean energy realm, one of your favorite stocks right now, energy storage provider Fluence is soaring today after the company reported excellent quarterly numbers. The stock is actually one of the biggest winners in the whole market today. How are you feeling about the energy storage space and Fluence in particular? Love Fluence. Love, 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 love Fluence. The numbers they reported are fantastic. They're a leader. They're flexing their muscles as the leader. Battery energy storage is really accelerating adoption, especially in Europe. Um, I mean, it's like I said, the, the world had an energy crisis in 2022 and it came to a fork in the road and the world had a choice. Are we going to go back in time and revert to more oil and gas production? Or are we going to go forward in time and accelerate our clean energy transition? And every single government of the world chose the go forward in time route. Every single government, the U.S. had the Inflation Reduction Act uh, all over Europe. So much legislation was passed that it's promoting clean energy adoption. China, Japan, India, all of these countries are saying they're, you know, left or right. They're choosing right. They're choosing go forward in time, go forward in time, go forward in time. So regardless of how you feel about oil, gas, solar, hydrogen, you know, the, the political ideologies attached to that, I don't care about any of that. What I care about is, okay, what are the most powerful institutions in the world? 
governments. Governments are the most powerful institutions in the world. What are the governments saying? Every single major government of the world is saying, we have the energy crisis and we're going to respond by accelerating the clean energy transition. Plain and simple. So you have to side with that trend. I don't see why you would fight that trend. Fighting that trend is fighting the most powerful institutions, organizations, uh, collections of people in the world. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to acknowledge, okay, they've decided they're going to accelerate the clean energy transition and I'm going to invest alongside that. That's a powerful secular mega trend, which will last for years and probably even decades. I mean, I just, you know, the EU just yesterday passed legislature, which is now taxing things in the global trade markets, imports and exports based on their greenhouse gas emissions. So if anything, the whole clean energy movement is gaining significant momentum at the current moment. What that means to me is more solar deployments, more wind deployments, more investment in hydrogen, more investment in nuclear, restarting of nuclear reactors, more investment into things like nuclear fusion, and at the epicenter of it all, more battery energy storage uh, system develop or deployments. And that's what Fluence's numbers showed me today in, in, in the earnings report and their conference call. Um, this industry is absolutely on fire because demand is so significant and accelerating so rapidly. Their only challenge is supply related. Can we make enough stuff to deliver on all the demand? That's a great problem to have. If that's your only problem, you're <laughs> sitting on cloud nine. And that's why Fluent Stock is acting the way it is today. So I'm very bullish on energy storage. You know that we talked about it a lot before. I'm particularly bullish on lithium ion battery energy storage solutions. I know there are a lot of other chemistries out there uh, which are competing for viable energy storage projects, but we need energy storage today. We don't need energy storage in five years. We don't need, we will need in five years and we will need in 10 years, but we also need it today. And the only solution, the only chemistry that is available today, ready to deploy and be actionable at scale are lithium-ion battery energy storage systems. And by the time they get deployed everywhere, then they become just the incumbent. They become what everybody uses. And then that's just what you know, more and more people will deploy and use. So um, that's why I'm bullish on lithium-ion battery energy storage systems. Influence is, is the leader there. They're the unrivaled leader in commercial uh, lithium-ion battery energy storage deployments. And I think that's where a lot of the growth is, where a lot of the market is. And I, I'm very bullish on that. And I think that this whole industry is going to grow significantly over the next 10 years. Um, falling interest rates, falling yields and improving economic outlook will obviously all help these stocks in 2023 and 2024. So you get the combination of these secular growth tailwinds with macroeconomic tailwinds and boom, you got a recipe for a stock that, that surges next year. So very bullish on Fluence going into 2023, very bullish on all clean tech and very bullish on energy storage stocks uh, for the next 12 months. Okay, Luke, uh, going to stick with clean tech space, but only because I know there's one stock in this area that you actually don't like, and we haven't talked about it for a while, and that is Tesla. Uh, we've been over the Tesla bear thesis before, and things have played out almost exactly as you've said, but can you briefly restate that bear thesis to refresh our memories and also update us on whether or not we should stick with the Tesla short? Yeah, Tesla's come, come crashing down, hasn't it? Um so the original Tesla bear thesis uh, went something like this. Tesla was the first mover 
and essentially only viable player in the electric vehicle industry for a long time. And they were the first to figure out how to make a cool looking, semi-affordable electric vehicle that could be mass produced. Um, and that was the Model 3. And that's what sort of put this, put Tesla, you know, as, as the company that it is today, made Tesla the company that it is today. But since 2019, when that ramp really happened, a lot of competition has come into the fold for Tesla. Uh, the legacy autos have electrified significantly and are continuing to electrify significantly, whether it's GM, Ford, Volkswagen, Toyota. Um, although Toyota is doing more hybrid and hydrogen stuff, but uh, BMW, Mercedes, all of these brands are electrifying. So both, you know, budget brands and, and luxury brands. And then at the same time, a whole swath of uh, new entrants are coming into the market trying to challenge Tesla's supremacy. Rivian, Lucid, Canoe, Fisker. And a lot of them, Fisker, Rivian, and Lucid specifically, are ramping production pretty nicely and starting to see Rivians on the road, starting to see Fiskers on the road. So, you know, that's, that, that's a thing. So basically, Tesla went from being the only option in the electric vehicle market, really the only option in the electric vehicle market two years ago, to being one of several options in the electric vehicle market today. That implies significant share erosion. Granted, the pie electric vehicles, that pie is growing, but Tesla has been losing market share and will continue to lose market share at a more significant pace over the next few years as these companies, I mean, Ford, GM, all those guys are only going to increase their investment in electrification. They're portfolio of EVs is going to grow exponentially. Rivian's production is going to grow exponentially. Lucid's production is going to grow exponentially. So if all of those things are growing exponentially, then that means Tesla share losses have to increase exponentially. So that is a basis upon which I, I started my Tesla bull thesis and kind of said, you know, to be clear, we were one of the first bulls on Tesla. I mean, we got bullish mm -hmm. back when, you know, Elon Musk was calling cave divers pedophiles. Um, you know, like back, way back, I don't know if you remember that scandal, like two or three, mm -hmm. years, like four years ago now, long time ago, I forget, but it was this huge thing. And everyone's like, that man can't sell cars. And we were like, it's going to be okay. <laughs> like, you know, the, this is the only electric vehicle in the market. We were bullish on Tesla when nobody else was bullish on Tesla. And we rode the train, you know, the rocket ship really way, way, way higher. And then we sold and we're like, we're done. Like, no, this, this, this growth story has run its course. It's peaked and now it's time for it to come back down. And it has come crashing back down. So that was the original original bear thesis. Now the stocks come down quite a bit. And normally mm -hmm. I would say, okay, take profits on the short, move on. Because the bear thesis has played out. But the bear thesis is actually getting stronger. And the bear thesis is getting stronger because Elon Musk is the, – the takeover of Twitter and his injection into the political realm almost – is not mm -hmm. a good move for Tesla. That mm -hmm. Tesla's losing a lot of customers because of Elon. I think Elon's behavior is causing a net loss of customers. I believe it is gaining some customers, but it is losing more mm -hmm. customers. And I think all those customers, you know, if, if you had a Tesla Model S or a Model X or a Model 3 or a Model Y, those are potential repeat customers. I think a lot mm -hmm. of those people after buying their Tesla are now going to go and buy a Rivian or going to go buy a Lucid or going to go and buy a, a, a Ford Mustang Mach-E. Um, I think they are going to branch out. And so mm -hmm. I think that the bear thesis of Tesla market share erosion 
is strengthening because of things Elon is doing because they're, they don't really have like a direct CEO, right? I mean, they do, it's, it's Elon, but he is spread. He owns what five <laughs> giant public companies. Like he, he is yeah. still a human. Yeah, at the end of the day, he still is a human. He stretched very thin. And so I, I, I don't know. I mean, if, if I'm going into war, which is basically what Tesla is going into right now, they're going into war with every automaker because now every automaker is on their playing field. If I'm going into war, I want my general, my commander to be all in with me. I don't mm. want him to be like kind of paying attention to that and then watching Thursday night football at the same time. You know, like that's, that's kind of what's going on over at Tesla is, and I, I think some of the employee morale is breaking down. I, I don't think it's a good situation at Tesla right now. And because of that, I think the stock can continue and will continue to crumble, even though the electric vehicle sales pie and electric vehicle megatrend is going to remain very, very strong and continue to grow uh, significantly. I, I'm just not bullish on where Tesla is. I, can they regain momentum? Absolutely. But it's going to require some significant changes. Um, that cyber truck's got to get up and going. Um, the, mm-hmm. These semi trucks have got to get up and going. Um, you have to get Elon more focused and or have him step to the side as a co-CEO and bring somebody else on as as the real kind of day-to-day operations person. Um, so I just – I think there's a lot of changes that need to happen there for them to regain momentum. And until those changes do happen, I think the stock is is a dead duck and, and will continue to fall in the manner that it has fallen over the past you know, 12 months. I mean, Setting what, aside – just to, just time out. What's really no, notable about about Tesla is that yesterday was a ninety five percent update for the market on Monday, and Tesla was was down six percent. And then today, you know, when the Nasdaq was up three point six percent or whatever, Tesla was flat. And I think last I checked, Tesla was down another five percent today. So the stock is showing significant weakness in the in the face of broader market strength. That's that's really bearish action out of a mega cap tech stock. When a mega cap, like when a small cap does that, oh, you can liquidity, oh, some some big buy order, some somebody fat fingered it, whatever. When a mega cap tech stock with as much liquidity and volume as Tesla does that, significantly under underperforms in big up market days, crashes on big up market days, we got problems. You know, Houston, we have a problem, and I think that's that's what's going on at Tesla. So I, I just wanted to end it on that note because I think recent price action is very bearish. Oh, no, yeah, no. Important point. Uh, set, setting aside uh, Elon Musk and kind of considering that there, that Tesla has all this competition coming in from all sides when it comes to EVs, does your bear thesis translate into their other sector with uh, energy like the charging wall? Is that same thesis where, you know, as more of this technology becomes readily available, that they're going to get hurt just as much on that side as they are on the EV side? Yeah. So I think that's that's the one thing keeping Tesla afloat. And the one reason I won't get too bearish on them um, is because I think the energy side of the business, not the solar side, but the energy storage side, Megapack mm-hmm. and Powerwall, I think are scaling very nicely. The growth numbers look very good over there. The demand backdrop is very strong. And I think Tesla owns the residential energy storage market with Powerwall. Megapack, I'm a little bit less bullish on because I think there's a lot of competition with Fluence and a couple other names in the space. But I think Powerwall, when I, when I look at residential battery energy storage systems, Powerwall is it. You know, that is the one. And so I think Tesla owns that market. Growth there, well, partially offset um, market share erosion in the electric vehicle market. But at the end of the day, this was a trillion dollar company that was making cars. 
And when you're a trillion dollar company that's making cars, you need to execute flawlessly and fire on all cylinders in order for your stock price to work. So even if the energy storage uh, business here does very well, that's not enough to get the stock to work if the EV business is not doing mm. as well. Um, so will that market share erosion extend into other parts of Tesla's ecosystem? Uh, to some, yes. To others, not. But I, for the stock price, I don't think it matters. The stock is still expensive enough to where all of those cylinders need to start firing. And if even just one or two of them are not, the stock will not work. And the more that are not, the more the stock will fall or the farther the stock will fall. So that's how I see Tesla and its, and its other businesses um, right now. It's, it's also worth noting, I think, that when you talk about, you know, they do sell some at-home charging things, not the at-home battery, not the Powerwall, but at-home charging things. You know, Fisker partnered mm -hmm. with Wallbox. And Rivian, you know, I think Rivian has their own. Um, I think Lucid has their own. So as these other EVs start to gain market share, then presumably because they're selling different chargers than Tesla, they will also gain market share in the residential charger market. So that's share erosion in the charger market as well. So um, as goes the EV business for Tesla, the core EV business, so goes about 80% of Tesla. And until that turns around, it doesn't matter how strong the energy storage business is. I, I think the stock will struggle. So in addition to shorting Tesla, should we be buying Rivian and Lucid right now? I mean, you know how I feel about them. I, I, my answer is yes, absolutely. I mean, I think Rivian and Lucid are going to win significant market share over Tesla in 2023 as their production ramps. I think Rivian is the more attractive of the two right now. They've been firing on all cylinders in terms of production ramp, um, and things look good there. They have the Amazon partnership. They, they're very well capitalized. Yeah, they're saying some people are worried about Rivian and, and Lucid and, and, and their cash use and all that stuff. Lucid is backed by Saudi Arabia. That's not running out of cash anytime soon, folks. Okay, they've already poured so much <laughs> money in there that they're going to keep that. It, Lucid can burn cash at the end of time, and the Saudis are going to keep it afloat. So <laughs> don't worry about cash burn there. And Amazon is going to keep um, Rivian afloat. So I'm not worried mm -hmm. about cash burn it there. I'm worried about production ramp. And right now, Rivian mm -hmm. is knocking it out of the ballpark on production ramp, and Lucid is doing pretty well on production ramp. So. I'm bullish on both, but I'm more bullish on Rivian. I think Rivian stock looks really good here. And then side note, I'm seeing Rivians everywhere here. And the reason I only mention that is because when I started seeing Teslas everywhere in San Diego is the moment, like it was months before Tesla stock went parabolic in 2019. Mm -hmm. Like I started to see them everywhere and I was like, you know, I was going online and then writing articles and trying to share my research. Like, no guys, they're everywhere. Like, Model 3s are taking over <laughs> the roads. And guess what? They did take over the roads in Tesla stock and Parabolic. Right now, I'm sharing the same insights about Rivians. Rivians are taking over the roads. They're everywhere. I am seeing them. And you read the reviews of them online. People love their Rivians. Love them. People don't love their Teslas anymore. So um, I think Rivian is, is, is a very good stock to buy for 2023. And a lot of big, big money is betting on it. A lot of hedge funds are piling into that stock. If you look at the most recent uh, filings from hedge funds, you see a lot of buying of Rivian, a lot of buying of Rivian. So I really do like Rivian stock in 23. I, I do like Lucid as well. And I think Fisker looks pretty good in 23. They just started the Ocean SUV production. SOP was in November. Um, I think if, if they hit their production targets – Throughout 2023, that stock goes to 2025 by the end of next year. So um, that's a that's a production story. Can they hit their production targets? A lot of execution risk there. But 
given who's in charge there, Henrik Fisker, and that that company basically has already learned the way not to do it. They already know the mistakes. They've kind of seen this rodeo before. Um, I think that they will hit their production targets. And if they do, like I said, that stock goes to 2025 and then the next year, if not higher. So that's another one I like going to 23. I like most EV stocks, most of the, the bigger EV stocks, except for Tesla. Because hmm. right. those other ones uh, are eating Tesla's lunch. <laughs> All right. Uh, two sectors I want to get your opinion on before we close. Home builders and China. Let's start with home builders. You've grown bullish on home builder stocks going into 2023. Why the housing market is a mess right now. Uh, housing market is a mess right now, but that's when you buy home builder stocks because home building is a secular growth industry. It goes through booms and busts and you buy it when a bust is going to boom again. People need a place so long as this remains true. People need a place to live. True or not true? If true, yes, then buy home building stocks when the housing market is a mess because the housing market is not going to be a mess forever. Eventually, it's going to normalize, come back, and home builder stocks are going to soar. So that's one of the reasons I like home builder stocks. You buy home builder stocks when the housing market is a mess. That's, that strategy has always worked. Number two, home builder stocks today are as cheap as they've ever been. Home builder stocks have never been cheaper. I think when I ran my analysis on them like a week or two ago when I did my first real deep dive into that bull thesis there, I was like, you know, they're trading at six times forward earnings. And that's that's abysmally cheap, never been cheaper. So they're about as cheap as, as they get. And when you buy them this cheap, they normally work out. So that that's another um, point for the bull thesis. The other thing is that I think the housing market is a lot better next year than a lot of people are giving it credit for. I think mortgage rates collapse in 23. Because again, I think inflation collapses in 23. And I think that the um, the Fed responds with a dovish policy pivot. And that leads to, a. I mean, Treasury yields, the 10 years, it's it's crashing. I mean, it peaked at what, 4, 3, 4, 4. It's come down to 3, 4. I mean, that's the sort of move that precipitates another 100, 200 basis points of decline. I think the 10-year goes all the way down to 2% or lower in 23. I think mortgage rates follow suit with a big crash. Mortgage rates go lower. There is enough demand on the sidelines that you're going to see a, a housing market rebound, a solid rebound in 2023. At least that's my opinion. So I think that when you put all those factors together, housing market's going to rebound next year. You buy home building stocks and housing market's a mess. And home building stocks are about as cheap as they've ever been or they are cheaper than they've ever been. I mean, that's a pretty solid foundation for a bull thesis on home builder stocks in, in 2023. So I really do, XHB is is the ETF there. Um, you know, there's a couple names, Toll Brothers, that you know, they look good. So uh, I like those stocks. I like that sector for 2023. And it's all part of my broader theme of like, buy rate sensitive assets. That rate sensitive mm -hmm. assets were crushed in 2022 as rates went higher. Rate sensitive assets will soar in 23 as rates go lower. It's a pretty simple thesis, a pretty simple logical framework here from which I'm operating. And housing is probably the most rate sensitive part of the economy. It got crushed in 22. It probably rebounds in 23, 24 as, as rates normalize and come down. So that that's one of the big reasons I, I like home builder stocks. I really do think they can move materially higher in 2023. And for the record, the last time I was really bullish on home builder stocks was December 2018. 
Um, and that's when home builder stocks have been crushed in 2018 by rising rates in a hawkish Fed. And then in 2019, rates fell and the Fed pivoted dovish, and that caused home building stocks to absolutely soar throughout 2019. And for, they were also trading at a single digit P multiple back then as well. So uh, we have the same situation, I think, here in December 2022. And I think 20, 2023 for our housing stocks, home building stocks, will look a lot like 2019, a big rebound year. All right. Uh, let's go across the sea to China. Chinese stocks were crushed in 2022. They've been bouncing back recently on hopes the economy will reopen next year. You think the reopening is going to spark a big rally in Chinese stocks? Should we be buying? Yes, I, I think I think people should be buying Chinese stocks and um, not hand over fist because you never buy China hand over fist. But I think <laughs> A certain amount of portfolio allocation to China is worthwhile today because I think China in 2023 is going to experience what the U.S. and Europe, mostly U.S. experienced in 2021, which is pent up consumer mm -hmm. demand couples with loose monetary conditions to unleash a massive economic boom. I think that's what China gets in 23. And I think it's going to be pretty large because, I mean, we were locked up for like a year, maybe. China has been locked up for like can be going on three years. Like by spring twenty three, that'll be three years. How? Mm. I mean, there's got to be so much pent up demand over there to go and do <laughs> things, to spend, to travel, to eat out, to do all those. I mean, there's got to be so much pent up demand. Then China, the People's Bank of China (PBOC) has been cutting rates and injecting liquidity into markets to keep it afloat while the economy has been locked down. So. You have all this pent-up demand coupling with those loose monetary conditions. I don't see how you don't get a pretty big boom in China. Um, the reopening is going to be choppy. It's not going to be smooth, but I don't think that particularly matters to the bull thesis. A choppy mm. opening is priced into these stocks. They were trading their lowest valuations ever a couple, like two months ago, lower than 2008. So these stocks were beaten up, dirt cheap, and now they have a very big upside catalyst on the horizon with the reopening that could spark massive revenue and earnings growth. That's again, that's a cocktail for, for higher stock prices, higher Chinese stock prices in 2023. So I, I do like that story. I do like those stocks there. Again, never buy China, China hand over fist because it's inherently very, very, very risky. You never buy a penny mm -hmm. stock hand over fist for the same reason. So don't do that. But yeah, don't ignore it either. There's good stuff happening over there. There's probably good money to be made. Throw, you know, throw it a bone or two and, and see what happens. So I, I think 2023 could be a pretty good year for Chinese stocks and in particular Chinese tech stocks because they've taken the, the brunt of the beating in 2022. All right. Well, that covers all of our topics, but we have a few fan questions. Uh, starting off with Valentin Vanta. Luke, are you still bullish on the People's Network Helium? Does this project still have a future? Yeah, I mean, I think as far as the crypto projects go, blockchain projects go, um, Helium is, is as good as it gets, cream of the crop. So I, I do like what's going on there. They signed some pretty big deals. Uh, it looks like deployment is, is pretty strong, you know, given what's happened in the cryptoverse over the past year. Uh, growth there at Helium still in the in the Helium network still looks pretty attractive. Um, if as far as cryptos go as far as blockchain projects go I, I think helium is is very 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 good 
And if we do get a boom cycle in 2023 for cryptos, which I believe we will get a boom cycle in 2023 and for cryptos in 2023, based on we have the Bitcoin halving in 2024, usually 12 months before that, you get a big boom cycle starting in, in crypto. So that would put us in the first quarter of 23. You get that coupled with it'll probably be lower rates, lower yields, more M2 growth. That typically is very conducive to Bitcoin going higher. So I think we get a crypto boom cycle in 23. If we get that, I think Helium could be a leader in that cycle. So yeah, still very constructive and positive on the long-term future and even near-term outlooks for Helium. Okay. Uh, Next question from Alex Andrade. Hey, Luke, when do you think is a good period to start a position with semiconductor stocks again like AMD? When will we see the CHIPS Act start making impact for this industry? Yeah, I, I'm getting constructive on semi stocks now. I know on these pot on this podcast before, you know, months back we said ditch semis, ditch semis, ditch semis, and I believe that at that point in time. And they, they came down and I think they're showing signs of bottoming and it's time to get back in. Semis are economically dependent. They rely on the economy. I think we get that soft landing in 23. I think that soft landing upside surprise causes semi stocks to really explode higher. They're really cheap. A lot of the companies are reporting supply chain challenges are a lot better. Demand trends are looking good. Inventory gluts have been cleared. I think that we are ready to rebound on semi stocks. I think semi stocks like NVIDIA, AMD, a lot of those names are ready to power higher next year. So I am now switching I was bearish on them, kind of turned neutral <laughs> over the past month. I've regrown. I always said when we when we sold our semi stocks, you did, we you didn't know. You definitely said there's going to be a time to jump back in. Yeah, when we were pairing our positions, pairing our exposure to semi, there's going to be a time to come back in. There's going to be a really great buying opportunity. You know, I don't, I can't tell you exactly when, but probably within the next 12 months, there's going to be a really good buying opportunity in semis. And I think that opportunity window is is open now. Uh, I don't think it's going to close soon, but I think it's open and I think it's, it's it's a good time to start getting back into those names. We've grown more constructive on semi-stocks over the past month. They reported great earnings. The economy is definitely showing signs of soft landing being very likely in 23. Inflation is coming down. Yields are coming down. Um, I, I like the story over at semis right now. I think there's a big bounce back due in, in 23. So, And they're really cheap. You know, The valuations on them are, are very, very cheap. And they've held up very nicely from an earnings growth perspective. So I do like semi-stocks here and now. Okay. Uh, next question from Pete Holdercher. One thought you've mentioned a few times has been discussing the massive job growth this year, but aren't we really just back to where we started before all the COVID lockdown job losses? In terms of total non-farm uh, employment numbers, yeah, that's that that's about true. Um, but what that means is we we still the momentum of the job market is almost more important than the absolute levels of the job market. That you don't go from a job market that has that much momentum to a job market that absolutely falls out of bed. You go from a job market that has that much momentum to a job market that declines but doesn't crash. Um, these things don't just, they're not like V's, they're like curves. And so the fact that our curve has a real nice upward slope right now means that we're probably going into a flattish slope and then a decline, but not just boom, boom, you know, straight up, straight mm. down. So that's, to me, what really matters is the momentum of the job market more than the absolute absolute numbers. But yeah, that's a, it's a very uh, accurate and astute observation that, yes, the job growth is just getting back what we lost in the pandemic. That That's why we've had massive job growth. Um, but I think what's, what's really impressive about that too is we've gotten this massive job growth with a lower labor participation rate. So we've regained a lot of those lost jobs, even though 
a lot of people just left the workforce. So if you include the labor force, the lower labor force participation rate, we're actually above where we were before COVID. Um, and that's, again, like I said, that's because a lot of people just stopped working after COVID and have not come back into the workforce. And that's been a problem for the Fed trying to get that back up because it means the, the workable population is stubbornly low. Um, but, you know, putting that aside, um, that is important to note that the labor force participation rate is significantly lower than it was before COVID. And therefore, the total non-farm payroll numbers are actually more impressive today than they were back then because we have a lower workable force population than we did in 2019. Uh, and our last question from Gerald Sachs. What do you think of ChargePoint? ChargePoint leading um, EV charging, L2 EV charging company. Um, I, I think they're great. I think they got a strong network effect in their business. Um, because they are winning massive contracts with massive companies and massive firms and uh, massive retailers and electrifying their locations. So there's a network effect inherent to that. Also a network effect on the consumer side where they have their app and you can use their app to find different chargers. So I think they have a defensible moat uh, upon which they can expand their leadership in L2EV charging. Um, and I think that will allow them to grow with the industry and, and continue to be a, a very quickly growing company. Uh, the market's concerned about profit margins. I get that. Gross margins should improve next year as inflation comes down and supply chains ease, especially with China reopening. So I think that the margin picture does, you know, kind of gross margins have been retreating, 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 retreating. I think that retrenchment, retrenchment trows either this quarter or next quarter, and then you get a series of quarters of gross margin expansion. The stock has followed those gross margins. It hasn't followed revenue growth because we all know it's going to be a 100%, 80%, 90% revenue grower. We all know that. That's a given. So what the stock actually follows is the gross margin trends, and I think those gross margin trends rebound in 2023, and that leads to the stock rebounding in 2023 as well. All right. Well, great insights for our listeners and HGI investors as always. Luke, do you have any last words before we wrap today? Have a holly jolly Christmas. <laughs> it's the best. Well, in that case, thank you everyone for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comments section. We love to hear your feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover. And as always, see if we can answer any of your burning questions. And as always, please don't forget to like and subscribe. And we'll see you all next week. Until then, Luke, sing us out. Oh, no. no sorry. I, that's that's a one-time thing. I, I, I do karaoke <laughs> and I'm not going to quit my day job. Let's just put it that way. All right. Well, until next week, bye all.